Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Welcome back to part two of our coverage of Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Let's give you a quick recap of part one. Mary was a British aristocrat raised in the late 1600s on a massive collection of books and a complete lack of parental supervision. She defied her father's wishes, gave up his support to Mary for love, or maybe at least to Mary for romance, made a splash at the court of George I and at the shadow court of his son. After giving birth to their first child, she contracted smallpox. Although she did survive, she was scarred both emotionally and physically. She then was able to set off on this epic adventure across Europe and the Ottoman Empire to Constantinople, where her husband had been appointed ambassador to Turkey. She was introduced to the practice of inoculation or engraftment to prevent smallpox, in which a small amount of disease material was purposely placed into a small wound in order to stimulate an immune response and give you a mild case of smallpox, thus protecting you from a future possibly fatal case of the disease. She took the opportunity to get her young son engrafted while she was in Turkey. It proved very successful. And then she brought that technique back with her to England when their term ended just a couple years into it. Due to her connections with royalty and nobility, it led to increasing acceptance of the procedure throughout Europe. After some test runs on condemned <laughs> criminals, and poor orphans, which I suppose is the best they could do for clinical trials. Yeah. Response was divided among acceptance and anger, however, and inoculation did come with a small risk. Not to mention it was foreigners and women who had been the early inoculators. So when she was faced with both people who felt like complaining at her and people clamoring for her to perform the operation and speak to them about it, Mary has withdrawn to the country for a while to get out of the limelight. After having dropped an angry bomb through the newspaper to all the doubters and detractors before she went. <laughs> so if we could leave Lady Mary there in the country for just a minute, more like 11 minutes. I would like to set up a parallel timeline, which is a sentence I don't know if it's ever been spoken before. I don't know. <laughs> I would like to set up a parallel timeline. Okay, so across the Atlantic in the colony of Massachusetts, a Puritan congregation put all their money together to give their minister a gift. Cotton Mather was his name, and you might know him from his work as the head writer in the groundbreaking, long-running series entitled The Salem Witch Trials. Mm. And what was this gift, you ask? Well, it was a human being, an enslaved man from West Africa. Many Puritans actively participated in slave trafficking. There are slaves in the Bible, they said. Well, I cannot dispute that. They're not wrong about that. Anyway, I'm sure the man, the gift man, had had a name before he got to the Mather household, but we don't know what it is. Cotton Mather renamed him Onesimus, which means profitable and helpful. Ouch. Well, right around the time that Lady Mary was having her three-year-old son inoculated in Turkey, Onesimus told his master that he wasn't afraid of getting smallpox because he'd undergone an operation that would forever preserve him from it. All you need is the courage to do it, said Onesimus, and then you'll be free of worry. Oh, 
thought Cotton Mather. It's devilish rights. We know his background. We're going to set him off on devilish rights and witchcraft. Oh, no. No, 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 no. It's just a cut and a touch. Seriously, said Onesimus quickly. He was very intelligent, according to his master. Too much, he thought, for an enslaved person and was almost crazily unafraid to move or deal with smallpox patients. Hmm. And so Cotton Mather asked around. Many West Africans corroborated Onesimus's story. Just like in Turkey, you just have the woman come do the thing when you're a child. Mm-hmm. It's very common. Further investigation, including reading the report from our old friend from episode one, Constantinople, Dr. Timony, who had helped Lady Mary in childbirth and then also introduced her to inoculation. He had submitted a paper to the Royal College of Medicine, and that is where Cotton Mather read it. And also he discovered it had been done in Turkey for a hundred years and China for hundreds of years before that. Well, there's something to be said for the wisdom of one's forebears. And he distributed literature and hooked up with a prominent doctor in the support of inoculation to try to convince people of the virtues of it. This doctor inoculated his own son, but still there were many objectors. Now, remember in Lady Mary's case, people thought, oh, it's just from women and foreigners. Well, in Onesimus's case, it was, and I quote, from Negroes. And there was giant mistrust for such foreign ways and also something that had come from people perceived to be of a much lower class. The religious objectors were stronger in America, to which I say, Kelsapriz. Really? That is shocking. <laughs> well, they had just gone through the witch trials. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. So yeah. let's give them points for being a little jumpy. But their point was that smallpox was from God. So do we really have the right to, to fight it in this way? To which Cotton Mather was like, oh, these hysterical objections are killing me, Smalls. <laughs> Well, in 1721... Sorry. I'm laughing at oh. smallpox. I'm sorry. It's funny that... Oh. <laughs> I would like to state that I did not officially connect smalls and smallpox <laughs> until Susan just said that. That's glorious. They're literally, you know, it literally is killing him smalls. So in 1721, which is the same year that Mary's daughter over in England became the first person that was inoculated on British soil. That same year, Boston was suffering a major smallpox epidemic. Patient zero had been one sick sailor. And within months, half of Boston was gravely ill. Cotton Mather and his doctor sprang into action and managed to inoculate 242 people, of which only six died. Now, if I did all of this math, so basically, (laughs) if you were one of the ones that got inoculated with smallpox, you had a 4% chance of death. If you went through it with nothing, you had a 14% chance of death. And then if you add all the people who became blind or severely scarred, you're looking at 4% versus 35% with bad effects up to and including death. But people still objected to a point where they threw a bomb through the window of Cotton Mather's house. Now, it had hit the wall across from the window so hard that the fuse fell off. Hooray. It didn't go off. And they were able to read the note that had been attached. Why write a note on something that's going to explode? I don't know. But this is what the note said. 
Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you. I'll inoculate you with this and a pox on you forever. Oh. Speak your like, mind, domestic terrorist. It's like a private message. <laughs> I guess. Well, ultimately, the statistics would bear out over here in America. Thomas Jefferson was inoculated as a young man. Benjamin Franklin lost a son in 1736. And in order to dispel the rumor that it was inoculation that had killed him, he didn't want to be the cause of inoculation stopping because he was really a big fan. He says, I long regretted bitterly and still regret that I had not given him smallpox by inoculation. This I mention for the sake of the parents who omit that operation on the supposition that they should never forgive themselves if a child died under it. My example showing the regret may be the same either way and that, therefore, the safer route should be chosen. That's just me being silent because <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. By the time of the American Revolution, and we did talk about this... 10 years ago on this show. Can you remember that? Because I barely do. But we talked about this during the Abigail Adams episode of this very podcast. George Washington was mandating inoculation for smallpox for his troops. You know, I have no one to nurse you. I can't afford the delay of sick soldiers. And I don't want to be forced to leave you by the side of the road. So this is the story. You're all going to be inoculated. He himself had had smallpox as a small child and had gotten over it the regular way. So it wasn't really his task to go through. But nevertheless, he he saw the writing on the wall and knew it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. OK, you know, woo, I just wanted people to know a little background of what was happening in America, because as Lady Mary's contribution became increasingly forgotten by history, a lot of people point to Anesimus as the originator of the bringing from other continents of the knowledge of smallpox. And that's true, but simultaneously, it was the doctor from Turkey that should be given most of the credit because he influenced both Cotton Mather and Mary mm -hmm. to proceed into their spheres of influence, you know? So it mm -hmm. really should be that doctor. Yes. No, I agree. I agree completely. The linchpin. Okay, so let's snap back in time and space <laughs> to Lady Mary. Okay, so where we left Mary before that little TARDIS trip across the ocean was... <laughs> She is 30 years old. She's kind of pulled back from London society and is living a country life. She has a few country friends and she's like just chilling. She's basically deleted her Facebook, <laughs> at least put it on pause for a while and was spending the time with the people she called her Choisi, C-H-O-I-S-I-S, -I -I just a few chosen friends. And one person she referred to as a young village girl by the name of Mariah Scarrett, who is in fact the titular mistress of a man named Robert Walpole. He's the very first British prime minister. One of Lady Mary's very best friends had been introduced by Lady Mary to the second most powerful man in Britain as her protege. Like, influence thy name is Lady Mary. Right, right. And I still love how she refers to her as a simple village girl. Yeah. <laughs> because she knew all these backstories to everybody and she had a very thin filter. I bet in real life she was very shockingly funny. Like she'd say the thing that you're like, oh, I wish I'd thought of that and kept it in my head. You know, for instance, one time she was at an event and somebody was commenting about the earrings that a woman was wearing. <laughs> 
She had received these specifically because she helped place somebody at court. And of course, everybody's like, oh, can you believe she's wearing this? And Mary said, well, how would you have people know where the wine is to be sold unless there's a sign hanging out? Do you want to get into court? That's where you go. There's a sign. That's funny. You know who she was sitting with on the sofa when she said that? Hmm. The Duchess of Marlboro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another person of great personal influence and thin filter. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Come sit by me, Alice Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice callback. I Thanks. like it. Who we have not covered, but she is on the list. Yeah. I think Alice Roosevelt lives in our head as someone that we have. We not covered her. We keep saying like, no, but we think we have. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess if we ever have a very short period of time to whip together an episode, we'll just do Alice. <laughs> oh, no, you're letting all our secrets. Out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you see Alice Roosevelt come up, something's going down in the background. A little Easter egg. From That's right. Us <laughs> Well, um, so Lady Mary was not, however, idle. Even though she was in the country, she became a patroness to other poets and writers who had sought her opinion and influence. In particular, a young cousin of hers named Henry Fielding, who would later write the notorious book, Tom Jones, that young ladies were not allowed to read until they were married. Mm. But this was a very early play, and I can't decide if it's the brother's or Love in Several Masks. So I'm not sure which play it was, but Mary used her influence to get it staged. It it was an in and out. It was a, uh, I think it lasted a day or a day and a half. But nevertheless, <laughs> launched him on his career. People started to know him. It really did launch his career. So she was really good with that. And also a little guy by the name of Voltaire sought her opinion on one of his works, placed it into her hands. I value your opinion. She read it, turned it back and said, this is really too bad for an established author to have written it. You didn't write it, did you? <laughs> but then she bought two copies. So right. <laughs> mitigated her insult. I just love it. She's Voltaire's beta reader. And she's good because she's given him her honest opinion. Oh, I love that. Now, she did have her fans as well, people who were supporting her writing. One of them was an uh, author who was one of her favorites from when she was a child. Her name was Mary Estelle. And Mary Estelle considered Mary, all these dang Marys. <laughs> Mary Estelle considered Our Lady Mary to be her kind of replacement. She was her mentor in writing and encouraging her. And the two would write things together. And uh, they just had this a personal relationship and then this writing relationship. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for all of it. One of the things that Mary Estelle did was encourage Lady Mary to publish those letters. Mary had been collecting her letters that she had been writing from Turkey, you know, her travel logs. She'd been editing them and cherry picking them and rewriting them. And Mary Estelle thought that they were literary gold. But Mary Wortley Montague wanted no part of that. What Mary wanted to do and what she did do is compile them all and just start circulating them among her friends. But they were really becoming kind of a underground sensation, kind of like an indie zine of the 80s. You know, it was hard to get your hands on it. But once you did, you read every single word of it and passed it on to somebody else. And friends who read it, now including... That feminist writer, Mary Estelle, her friend, they urged her to publish, but she was like a class. Mm, I don't belong to the class that needs to be publishing things. 
and B, gender. You know, it's mm-hmm. not really appropriate for me, even though literally who is sitting in the room with you? A published lady author, whatever. That's not right. insulting to her, but okay. And she spent her youth seeking out the books of female writers. But I really think it's more of a social class issue that she doesn't want it published. Oh, like it's kind of not our kind, dear, to publish? Correct. Correct. Which kind of surprises me because she's such a free thinker and very unconventional in a lot of ways. But this is like some bit of convention that she's holding on to. We talked about that during the Bronte episode, too, Mm -hmm. how, you know, they had to adopt male names and how Jane Austen's work was first published under, quote, a lady. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it was maybe embarrassing to be from a social class that was elevated in some way. I mean, even this collection of letters didn't have her name on it. I mean, everybody knew who wrote it, like anything else that she's written and circulated this way. Well, and remember that once upon a time, I mean, a long time ago, Mary herself wrote, there is hardly a character more despicable or liable to universal ridicule in the world than a learned woman. Like somewhere she had internalized that. No matter how much praise she got from the outside, that was what was on the inside, Mm -hmm. it seems like. Mm -hmm. And maybe these poems and things that she had been circulating before didn't really matter. It's like, oh, I just dashed it off, whatever. Right. But like this was actually very dear to her heart. And I think it would have killed her to have published it and had it taken apart. And she did say, I will not have this published during my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So back to the personal note, the a few little family notes here. Her husband had lately become, I guess, a guy I'm going to call Mr. Business Money. When we have security, we lose passion, I guess. I don't know. He's a mess. He has decided to focus all his attention on his new venture, that of being a coal baron. And this was a family business. This is how his family had made their money and he inherited it. So he is traveling up north to manage his coal mines, unless you think that's something just for people with white shirts on. Watch an episode of Poldark. You can see (laughs) how dirty mine managers get. So in our heads, we're thinking this, you know, diplomat, this member of parliament, this politician, and then we're adding in this element of coal dirt. Further keeping the two of them apart, Mary and Edward did get two homes. One of them was in London proper. The other was in a suburb called Twickenham. And it was there where she really got into all this domestic stuff. She was singing. She was drawing. She was gardening, which sounds to us like something an old lady kind of does. I do it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But... This isn't like digging in the dirt and getting your nails dirty gardening. This is garden design. And it was a huge thing for society people at this time to design their own gardens and get really exotic and talk about plants at dinner parties and that kind of thing. Mary can also be credited, in addition to bringing the smallpox inoculation from Turkey, she also brought something that we talk about a lot when we talk about the Victorian era, the language of flowers. It's probably a misinterpretation of what they were doing in Turkey, but Mary presented it as fact. And this is what they did in Turkey as a, quote, mysterious language of love and gallantry. She said, there is no color, no flower, no weed, no fruit, herb, pebble, or feather that has not had a verse belonging to it. You may quarrel, reproach, or send letters of friendship or civility or even news without ever inking your fingers. 
It would be about another hundred years, however, before the first European book about the silent language of flowers was written, and that was in Paris, but not long after it really caught on in England. So she's just a leader of fashion in a lot of different areas. Right. It's like, here's this thing. She like drops it. People are like, oh, yeah, that's kind of weird. And then a hundred years later, they're going to pick it back up and go, look at this thing. This is like witness the amount of ladies painted in Turkish dress in Mm -hmm. the decades after she showed up in hers, you know, in a painting. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing. I have to say something popped into my head when you were talking about the language of flowers. And it's kind of like the antithesis of that. There's a movie called The American President where he's trying to send her flowers and he's Uh trying to get one that has meaning, like the state flower of her state and this and that. And he's like, oh, I guess I'll just go with roses. It's kind of boring, but everybody understands that's awesome or whatever. And then he finally decides he can't get the order through to the flower shop and he sends her a ham. She's from Virginia. So there's like the language of flowers and then there's the language of pork. (laughs) The language of flowers is called floriography. Would that be like porkography? (laughs) I don't know. Oh, that's funny. My husband would appreciate that. He once made me a bouquet of bacon roses. Let's see if I can find that picture. Oh, that is so cool. I love that. So So I have to tell you, even though I'm not a big fan of bacon, the bacon roses actually touch my heart more than the actual roses would have. And he brought them to your place of work, didn't he? Yeah. 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 Even better. To which everybody is like, what the heck? I know. <laughs> and Beckett's like swooning in the corner. My man, my man, <laughs> my man. I just loved it. Well, so on to another man in Mary's life. Not um, uh, not a man that's making her life any easier. At 14, Young Edward, her son, ran away from school. He changed clothes with a poor boy on the street, a la Prince and the Pauper, and went to sea. He pretended to be the son of a poor woman and one of 10 children, but his his accent, his vocabulary, and uh, his manners really betrayed him. Everyone was super suspicious of him from about a few miles out. And at Uh Gibraltar, where Lady Mary's ads, advertisements had been posted, he was immediately identified and sent back. He was identified by his inoculation scars, which evidently were circles on his wrists that were four scratches vertical, four scratches horizontal on both wrists. And so that's how they recognized him. That's what the shape of his scars was. And that's a very unusual shape. It's almost like being able to identify somebody by a tattoo. Right. I was actually thinking that that would kind of be kind of a cool tattoo if that was your thing, you know, giving vaccines. And she really (laughs) constantly from here on out, kind of he was the scourge of her heart. She wrote, 5,000 pins and needles have run into my heart from this ungovernable little rake. (laughs) I think we all at some point say the same thing about our teenage sons, but they have not run off and gone to sea. I know. That wasn't the only time that he's going to run away from school. It's kind of a hobby of his. Let's see how long I can run away and become, I don't know, a fishmonger or hop a ship to Portugal and get a job at a vineyard. Which is exactly what the son of a woman who got so much thrill in her life traveling to Turkey would end up doing. And yet, (laughs) the thing that attracts us to someone is also the thing that drives us crazy. Isn't that true? Well, someone who had been mad at her for decades finally came around. She was reconciled at last with her papa. 
Upon his death, he left Lady Mary the significant sum of $6,000, which was to go to her daughter after her own death, thus perpetuating the family tradition of a grandparent making provision through the parent to a specific grandchild. But the rancor of the past decades had been wiped away and they were reconciled. Right at the end, some closure. So we have had some troublesome relationships with the men folk in our lives right now. <laughs> um, one after the other, and now to the fourth, and maybe the biggest, baddest one of them all, one Alexander Pope. So Mary continued to write satire and poems that made their way into print anonymously. She never just like submitted them to a publication. And, you know, everybody started talking about what is Alexander Pope's and what's not Pope's? Who is this anonymous author? Ha ha. And then stuff she wrote could be confused for his. And it was a fact that infuriated him. As far as he's concerned, his writing is untoppable and unstoppable and distinguishable from anyone else. And he would just swing from, what am I going to say, obsession to poison. Like mm -hmm. he lambasted her in his work. but. He literally kept a commissioned painting of her in his house until his death. Is there a color more alarming than red for these flags this boy waves on a daily <laughs> basis? And what on earth started all of this? Now, popular opinion at the time, during the Victorian times, and even now, seems to think that Pope declared his love for her and she laughed at him. Which would be a really good reason to have a falling out, I would think. What is that statement that women fear their partners will kill them? Men fear their partners will laugh at them. It's like the worst thing. Yeah. So you can see this in a painting by William Powell Frith from 1852, in which he said in the catalog at the exhibition, at some ill-chosen time, when she least expected what romances call a declaration, he made such passionate love to her that in spite of her utmost endeavors to be angry and to look grave, it provoked an immediate fit of laughter from which he became her implacable enemy. That's a great story. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much to believe because, you know, they're seen around town still. They were neighbors. They talked gardening together. How much could they be enemies? Or is it one of those situations where, you know, you keep your enemies closer? Well, I think it started out irritated. And I think they irritated each other all the time. You know, mm -hmm. there was a famous quote in one of the papers, like, they quarrel with everyone else. How silly would we be to think they didn't quarrel with each other? And there, that's one thing. You're stupid. Shut up. Don't call me tomorrow. Fine. You know, whatever. Uh -huh. <laughs> they had those kind of things all the time. But this started to really, 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 really fester. And I, I have to say, this turned into a decades-long battle. A rap battle, I guess you might call it, if you were being insulting, of the 18th century or a lampoon war. He would write things like, 
A lady's face is all you see undressed, for none but Lady M will show the rest. I mean, what? Yeah, I know, I I know. And he had such a huge platform at the time, you know. He was a very famous writer. And he also got very jealous because she had a new sort of best man friend named Lord Hervey. And he took offense at the fact that sometimes she would rather hang out with Lord Hervey instead of him. And he wrote poems about that, too. Such, Lady Mary, are your tricks. But since you hatch, pray own your chicks. You should be better skilled in knocks and like your capons, serve your cocks. And a capon is a castrated male chicken. I don't know if that meant Lord Hervey, but. Yeah, I got nothing. (laughs) Um, You know what? All I keep thinking of is that painting you were just talking about because she just is laughing and he just looks so dejected. And behind them is a statue of two cherubs like hugging. It uh, brings forth a lot of emotion, I think. Right. Well, he went too far and produced a work called The Dunciad, which is a thinly veiled satire on all and sundry. Loosely, um, you know, the name was supposed to evoke the Iliad. And again, I have to say the word lambasted. I seem to like that word. Lady Mary in public. And unfortunately for everyone, a publisher released a like a key to the references, like footnotes, like uh-huh. wiki dunciad, you know, <laughs> oh, this is what they mean. <laughs> Sorry, that was good. And Lady Mary didn't understand really why he'd gone off the rails. She kept sending people to ask him, what is your damage, you know? And that's fine. I'm down to participate. If this is really what you want, a lot of poems came out and most weren't hers, but did defend her. But, you know, her name was just dragged out all over everywhere. But I will tell you, her young cousin, Henry Fielding, helped her construct a few spicy rebuttals. Mm-hmm. But again, she didn't have the platform that he had. So she could write the most cleverest, jabby rebuttal ever. And not as many people are going to read it as going to read his. She did have her defenders. Mm-hmm. Some of her knights gallant released something called Mr. Taste, the poetical fop, in <laughs> which Lady Airy, they just took away her M, was a young woman of fortune, of wit and merit, yet strangely whimsical, versus the obvious Pope character, which they called an untalented hunchback poet. Also, oh, I know, we need to kill Pope with poison made from bad poetry. So be sure not to use any of Lady Mary's and only use his own. How? There were so many battles, public and private, mess. She's afraid to go anywhere in society if Pope was there because her fame made people look at her and talk about her. And it's just no good being this kind of a celebrity. It's uncomfortable and she's tired of it and she doesn't fully understand it. And it's just irritating the crap out of her. Like everyone is making her mad. So all that is going down. And there could also be a political element, which seems too familiar in this day and age, because Lady Mary supported Robert Walpole and his government. I don't know if it was true support or if it was just loyalty to a friend um, or a friend's boyfriend, you know, but Pope thought he was the devil. And so never the twain shall meet politically either. Mm. So that's another tension. So it may have been a kiss. It certainly was all of this nonsense in the public press, and it may also have had a darker political element. Mm -hmm. Well, people say that, you know, you have 
friendships for a reason or for a season or for a lifetime, his season was up. And so the fact that they had this these tools to spar with. I'm sorry that this relationship went south, but it looks really familiar these days. I do want to just say that again, you know, like in the first episode when I said that there were people who reveled in her discomfiture, you know, there were and there always are. But then there were also people who described her like this. She was renowned for her wit, beauty and politeness. She was long admired at court, the author of many pretty poems scattered abroad and a true patroness of men of wit and genius. So that does not sound like the monster full of filth and lust that Pope was painting her to be right. for no apparent reason. So you should know from the tone of our voices that we are a little bit like thumbs down, Alexander Pope. <laughs> yeah. At home, her son continued to disappoint his parents. You know, this is the son that ran away to sea at the age of 14. Mm-hmm. He was sent away to the West Indies by his parents. Just like, get him out of here. He is bringing shame on the family name. And he was gone for years. When he came back at 17, he explained to his parents that he had married a washerwoman named Sally. And his papa wouldn't have him in the house. And Lady Mary was forbidden to speak to him. They did encounter each other a couple of times on the street, and the son tried to charm his mother into helping him, but she's kind of powerless. There's eyes everywhere. He abandoned his spite wife, and his parents did contrive to support her. I mean, she's part of the family legally, um, but they sent him away again with a governor, like, goodbye. Oh, my gosh. And then he spent his time drinking, gambling, and ladying, and people said Mary was a very bad mother. To which she just said, he has broken my heart. In contrast, for now, her daughter, young Mary, was dutiful and sweet, good at singing and and acting. She's a great writer. She's a great reader and extremely intelligent. And she related a conversation that she had with her mother in which she said that this one specific girl wouldn't be her friend because she said she was intimidated by her wit. And Lady Mary said, dull people always despise clever ones. If you ever feel superior enough to reveal your intellect, you should know that you will face a high price for it. (sighs) If anyone will know, she should know. And I think her, her mantra was slowly becoming, yes, be smart, but keep it all inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry that she's having to learn those lessons. Things in Mary's life are not going well. In addition to all those relationship issues, she got herself wrapped up in a financial scheme that involved speculative shares and a shipping company. How it ended for Mary was when the price went out of the shares and they were worthless, she was stuck holding shares for other people. One of those people started to blackmail her that he was going to tell her husband that she had caused this great financial mess. It's causing a black mark on his name unless Mary pays him, which Mary's scrambling to try to do. But finally, it reached Edward's ears. And guess what? He was not happy. Yet another wall was built in between them that she just couldn't get around. I mean, their relationship was pretty bad to begin with. And then this situation happened and it just got worse. Another bad thing that was happening is her friend Mary Estelle. Her dear friend, her writing partner, her mentor, we could call Mary Estelle the first English feminist, somebody that Mary really looked up to. 
She developed breast cancer, had an anesthesialist mastectomy, and died shortly thereafter. So now her dear friend has died on top of all this other stuff. Think how much courage that took to undergo that operation oh. with no anesthesia. I swear I've seen that in a in a scene from a movie, but it reminds me also of in the American Civil War, surgeons were prized that were quick mm-hmm. because there's nothing else that you could give them but quickness. Mm-hmm. I do yeah. want to add this footnote to Mary Estelle's life. Remember, she had had that idea for all girls schools and colleges. Mm-hmm. She actually did eventually help establish an all girls school that had an all women board of governors. And she was able to live out some of her dreams, which is good. Mary Estelle was not the only person of note in her life to die at this period of time. She wrote to her sister Frances about the death of their sister Evelyn, who they called Sister Gower. Isn't that interesting? Sister Uh Gower and Sister Mar instead of Evelyn and Frances. Well, Evelyn died really very young in 1727. And the letter that Mary writes to her sister Frances is so cold, I guess. It's not, it's, it's just casual. And I don't know whether it's an indication of the relationship between the sisters or the fact that she had an indication that her sister Frances was mentally fragile and didn't want to make a big deal of it. She writes, I was interrupted by a summons to my sister Gowers, whom I never left since. She lasted from Friday to Tuesday and died about eight o'clock in such a manner as has made an impression on me not easily shaken off. I won't trouble you with melancholy circumstances. I hope you will not let melancholy hurt your own health, which is truly dear to your affectionate sister. That's all she wrote. So it does speak a little to Lady Mary's knowledge of her sister Frances's very fragile and dicey state of mental health. She has written very recently to this particular sister. Dear sister, I was very glad to hear from you, though there was something in your letters very monstrous and shocking. My cure for lowness in spirits is not drinking nasty water, but galloping all day and a moderate glass of champagne at night in good company. I believe this regimen closely followed is one of the most wholesome that can be prescribed and may save one a world of filthy doses and more filthy doctor's fees at the year's end. You know, that's a cure I can get behind, although I think I would replace it with a gin and tonic at this point. Oh, no. Unfortunately, I do think that Lady Mar at this point had mental illness, like at least a clinical depression, you know, maybe some type of psychosis was going on. So to tell someone in that state of mind to just cheer up and look at the bright side of the street, you know, isn't going to help. The circumstances of their life was tumultuous. Lord Mar had been exiled as a traitor. He was actually tried in absentia for treason under a bill of attainder like long ago, and they had to live in France. They could not set their toe in this country. Now, his wife didn't come in for the same type of prohibition because she came from, in fact, like the wiggiest of the wiggy wiggertons. <laughs> like n- nobody thought it was her family, you know, hmm. surely she can't have fallen that far from the tree. Obviously, his his wife would travel and live with him on a day to day. But Francis's mental state worsened over the years. Things had come to such a pass that when Lady Mary was 38, her sister Francis, it was deemed that she should come to England. 
She was gravely ill, shockingly so when Lady Mary saw her, so disordered in the head that she will scarce recover her senses, said Lady Mary, and thus begun a ferocious custody battle between Lady Mary Wortley Montague and Francis's husband's people. And I don't think they were necessarily that concerned about Lady Frances herself. I think what they were concerned about is if she came to England and was taken care of by someone else, her money also came. Yeah, the brother-in-law had been given, um, I don't know what the legal term is, where he was in control of the finances of Lady and Lord Mar. He was the money guy and he wanted to keep everything that he could. Yeah. At one point, this brother-in-law went physically to get Lady Mar and bring her up north with him. Mary got involved. She went out and got a warrant ordering that Lady Mar be returned to London. And Mary herself rode this warrant out on horseback to deliver it to the carriage and bring her sister back home. Yeah. Due to kidnapping, turn around. And here is the official paperwork. Mm -hmm. And see to the side this officer of the law that will ensure that you obey what's on this piece of paper. Nuh-uh, I was just securing my control of her fortune. That's kidnapping. Turn this action around and get this back to the city. Ultimately, three judges and a 17-man jury, which seems very prime number Harry Potter random numbers... (laughs) Found Lady Mar of unsound mind, of unknown origin. Perhaps, said the official record, it was a visitation by God. I just, anyway, that's what they said. I think that's what they said when they didn't know what to say. Like, um, isn't that in your insurance policy, acts of God not covered? Yeah, I'm incredulous. Ultimately, the custody of the money and Lady Mara was granted to Lady Mary because they tangled with this influencer and they got what was coming to them. And Lady Mary um, I was definitely the best person, I think, to have charge of her. Oh, she was. She found a place for uh, Lady Mar to live. It was an asylum, but it was a very compassionate one. The person who ran it didn't believe in chaining up the patients. He did believe in medicinal sedatives, interventions, but not cruelty. So she was in the best place she could possibly be given her mental state. And Mary got her there. Oh, my goodness. Was the husband angry? Lady Mar's husband was ordered to pay for his wife's maintenance, which infuriated him. Lady Mary had made him poorer when all he was needing is more money. And I quote, Lady Mary had deprived me of the possession and direction of my family, which is my right as a husband. Also, Lady Mar will now be neglected and I cannot come to Britain to prevent it. Mm, Yeah, I don't think so, dude. There was a bitter battle against Lady Mary culminating in her probably using her political influence to cancel a pardon that was rumored to be headed his way. People signed off on, I guess he can come back after all this begging. It's been a long time. He's obviously very sorry. He'll behave himself. And the wisdom is that Lady Mary prevented it from happening. Yeah, that's again, do not tangle with the the influencer capital letters. He never returned to Britain. Well, 
It even went further because Lady Mary petitioned the court to let their daughter, Lady Frances, come and live with her. So Lady Frances joined this baby gang of teenagers, mostly girls, who haunted Lady Mary's household. Her daughter, Mary, of course. And then her brother's two children, who we last saw as extremely small children. The brother, the slightly older one, is now a duke because of his grandpapa died. He inherited that title as his father was dead. He's a mess, man. A rich young man with the title of a duke. (laughs) He is a lady killer. Let's just put it that way. He also has a younger sister who is there. And then Lady Mary's two much younger half-sisters, remember, that her papa got married again and had two more daughters. And then Fanny Erskine, the daughter of Lord and Lady Mar. They're all hanging about and they're all full of literary interests and they liked to be actors and make up plays and they were loud and boisterous. And I actually kind of like that about them. They're all cousins of a sort mm-hmm. and they're all hanging out together. And for a brief period of time, now we have boys. I don't, I don't know what happens with daughters. So for a brief period of time, they were like peas and carrots, Mary and her mother, Lady Mary, they they went about and, and had adventures in society. And Lady Mary wrote a like a fanfic of a famous play for her featuring her and all her friends. I don't know. It seemed nice. Yeah. No, it does. Actually, just all those cousins, you know, being so close together and the kind of people they were kind of sounds like the basis for a John Hughes movie from the 1980s, like a Brat Pack kind of situation. It really does. Now, Lady Mary was unreasonable about placing blame because young Mary was in a theater box with one of her cousins who had really determined to go elope and used young Mary as cover. You know how you close uh-huh. the curtains and, and then you, you vanish or whatever. And Lady Mary sort of never forgave her daughter for not telling about that so it could be stopped. And I just think you are a fine person. <laughs> To blame someone. I wonder if she's thinking, you know, if somebody had stopped her, how her life would have been different. Got it. But Mm -hmm. not that she would have listened. No. You know, she's so wrapped up in it. Well, talk about echoes of the past, the elopement and aftermath. Young Mary was presented at court. Very proud. So proud. She made such a good face of it. In due time, her father... Mr. Wortley Montague began casting about for a suitable husband. She's 17 years old. They settled on Lord Percival, a son of an Irish earl, the exact clot-worthy Skeffington situation (laughs) Lady Mary had hated so much the first time that she basically left out a window to avoid it. But young Mary had met her own, remember they had heaven and hell, she met her own heaven, the Earl of Butte. And they fell in love. And just like her own mother did, young Mary decided to marry for love. Even though mama and papa thought that he was so below her station, she decided she was going to marry him. Percival, Lord Percival, the son of the Irish Earl, just simply saluted and left the field of battle having lost. You know, he was a (laughs) true gentleman. But Mr. Wortley Montague was furious absolutely furious about this situation. And he said he would give them no money at all. He was willing to give Lord Percival a settlement. But no, this guy gets nothing. 
Now, if that's not an echo of the past. I was, I know, exactly. <laughs> no, I will say in a little bit of a different twist, Lady Mary was won over by the emotion and by the personable young man. I mean, he was titled, you know, he had come mm-hmm. into his title already. He wasn't even an heir. He was actually an earl. She came in on the young couple's side emotionally. And for some reason, she also came in for the blame. Like her husband blamed her for that emotional support. And then her daughter blamed her for her father's attitude. I don't know how that works, but I assure you it works that way. I don't know why. And come hell or high water, those two were married. And then they moved to Scotland. And I quote the daughter to get away from mother. That's so sad. I know. I. So her son, gone, functionally. Her daughter, gone. Her husband, distant. Society, whack. Friends, who even were they? Sister, incapacitated. Like, Yeah. What? Oh, yeah. People dying. Yeah. No, it's, it's not looking so great for her. For the first time in her life, maybe, Lady Mary was in a crisis at a crossroads with no clear direction at all. Something really exciting should be happening to her at about this point in her life just to turn everything around. And it did. May we introduce you to a Venetian writer, a man about court, Francesco Algarotti. Is that dramatic (laughs) enough? (laughs) So what if he's only a year older than her 24-year-old son? So what if he had a history of betting anyone who struck his fancy? He was dashing and handsome. He and Mary had shared acquaintances like Queen Caroline and Voltaire. Who had actually sent this man a letter of introduction to Lord Hervey specifically for very specific purposes. I think you two will get along nicely. Wink, wink. Look straight to camera. (laughs) Oh, and they did. He was intelligent, and although he was from a merchant family, he had been extremely well-educated. He was also ferociously handsome and mucho charming, and everyone loved him. He came to Lady Mary's house, ostensibly, to see some of the archaeological booty she had taken from Troy and stayed around for some other booty. (laughs) As Mary wrote about their meeting not too much later, quote, I faint and find heaven within his arms. Later, she wrote a poem about how he looked asleep in bed, the plenteous silken hair and waxen arms, the well-turned neck and snowy rising breast, and all the beauties that supinely rest. So uh, the offer not taken up in Austria oh so long ago was accepted now. Mary seems to have fallen in love. Where did this come from? It's almost like all of this emotion had been sitting in a box and someone opened it up. And it wasn't just in bed that they had a great relationship. They were able to speak about art and literature and philosophy. They had great banter. Unfortunately, uh, Mary did not know that her new gentleman was an opportunist. I guess that's the easiest way I can put that. Unbeknownst to her, Mr. Algarotti was also indeed having a torrid old time with Lord Hervey, as he had been ordered to do by Voltaire. That's a sense that had never been <laughs> said before. 
And to the writers of Schitt's Creek, I am looking at you, Dan Levy. Have you read about Lady Mary? Because there is a running storyline about um, two characters being involved with the same person on that show that has a very strong resemblance to this. Are we talking about the white wine and the red wine conversation? We are. But I don't think that the red wine and the white wine know about each other. Yes. No. <laughs> well, they are part of different courses. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, and then a throwback to Emily Post by Susan Wellenweider. <laughs> da, 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 da. Wow. Okay, so uh, he stuck around until he finished his book. He was working on a book about the work of Isaac Newton, and I believe it's called Newtonianissimo. No, Newtonianissimo. <laughs> Newton, Newtonianissimo. Nutani, it's Italian. I can't pronounce it. I have. He finished his book. <laughs> okay. Well, he in a- which he had a character of a Martianess who, and I quote, displayed charms capable of inspiring thoughts and discourse, little relative to philosophy, by which he means physical charms. And he also mentioned inoculation. He wrote about how the smallpox inoculation was helping to preserve the beauty of English women. Not that it was keeping people alive or anything like that, but it was keeping English women beautiful. This guy is a master of the flirt. It probably seeps out of his pores. You know, one of those people that you walk in and he's just flirt-o-rama. So he spent his last night in England with Mary and he lied to Lord Hervey that he was having dinner with some unknown acquaintance in order to do so. And Mary thought this was it, man. She was so sad and then she was despairing. And when she realized he was going to leave, she said, I will love you all my life. And then just as immediately despaired and said, no man has ever been in love with a woman over 40 since the deluge. And I am very sorry to tell you that once Lord Hervey found out about that last night, oh my gosh, we have just taken the cap off of a horrible rivalry where Lord Hervey maintained the appearance of remaining her dear friend, but made sure to mock her in his own letters to Algarotti. He rolled on her because she treated him like a confidant. And he just like bold face lied to her and tricked her and just passed on everything she said and twisted it to Algarotti. Yeah, he was conning her into doing things like writing poetry about her relationship with Algarotti together. These poems with the sentence like, my heart beats thick, my senses fail, disordered, blushing, cold and pale. Mary's a mess. She misses him bad. Oh, my goodness. She just could not stop thinking about him. She went so far as to send him a portrait of herself, uh, a copy of one that had been painted when she was around his age, 26, along with a syrupy love poem. And she offered to travel to him if he wouldn't come back to England, after which there was radio silence from him for well over a year. But he was writing to Hervey this whole time. And Hervey's such a nice guy that he goes back to Mary and tells her that the body you speak of has not mentioned you in his letters to me. 
Like, oh, he hasn't mentioned you at all. Oh, what a jerk. Well, to pass the time, although never putting Algarotti out of her mind, she took up for the first time on purpose the concept of publishing. Do you, you know, like things that she had written had ended up published, but this time she set out to have some of her political writing published, although it did come out under anonymous. There was an anti-Walpole paper called Common Sense, not the one you learned of in literature class, which was by Thomas Paine and almost 100 <laughs> years after this. Sorry. I know you're like, oh, I know. No, not no, that no. one. <laughs> to which she wrote The Nonsense of Common Sense, this series of articles that were printed on the front page, tackling a number of hot button issues from the point of view of the Walpole philosophy, from freedom of the press to labor conditions to public mourning and men's treatment of women, in which she said there ought to be a museum of women's character rather than their beauty. Well, we're still fighting that one, Lady Mary. I'm sorry about that. A lot of the things she was writing about sound like things that are still going on these days. She wrote a piece about a plea for low interest rates Mm. so that people can get out of poverty. She wrote pieces about treating working class weavers better and maybe we should stop buying foreign silk and start buying local wool instead, you know, to pump up our own economy. These are pretty modern topics. It was kind of a side project for her, and it really didn't hold her attention for a long term. She just kept thinking about Algarotti. Even the birth of her first grandchild didn't fill that Algarotti-sized hole in her heart. Lady Mary's daughter, Mary, had a child and named her, everybody want to take a guess, Mary. So Lady Mary's daughter, Mary, had a baby named Mary. So Mr. Algarotti blew through town with an obvious new boyfriend. Yes, he did. But what did Mary do? She, number one, said, please forgive this absurdity you've brought into being, by which she meant herself. And she decided to follow him to Europe for her health, she said. Did he even know? No idea. Algarotti went from patron to patron and city to city. I'll meet you in Venice, says Lady Mary. Did he hear? Did he understand she meant it for real? I I just don't think so. And this is just madness. No, but Mary now had a new project. In her head, she's going to Venice. So in secret, she's really getting ready. She packs 13 trunks and three of them were full of books If she's not our kind of woman there, I don't know what she is. She packed her needlework. She packed a couple quilts, some silver, some china, not nearly enough snuff. She told everybody that she was going to go to France to visit some friends for her health, including telling her husband, who believed her. Because why wouldn't he? Well, so she set off and ended up going through Dijon, where she did not find any Grey Poupon. You know what? She would drive the kind of car where she'd have Grey Poupon, though. I'm just saying. She does run in that social circle. (laughs) Um, She went through Lyon, France, running into friends and acquaintances everywhere. Such is the reach of, or maybe smallness of, her social circle. Turin, Milan, and at last to Venice, where she only ended up there by accident, she said to her husband in a letter, due to the breakdown of my carriage, I didn't mean to come to Venice. But while I'm here, 
You know who wasn't in Venice? Algarotti. He was off in Russia doing some wink, wink favors for his new pal, Frederick the Great. <laughs> well, if we are a social climber, as Algarotti was, this was the patron to have. It's a pretty tall ladder. Mm. Well, the thing is that Lady Mary's fire and it factor also worked in Venice. She was a social success in Venice. She had rented a palazzo right on the Grand Canal, wrote back another series of epic letters to her friends about gondolas and the canals and the food and the dress and the variety of people you could meet with in Venice. It really was a crossroads of cultures there. She began holding literary salons with notable men, ambassadors from all corners of the world made pilgrimages to her house. Young Englishmen on the Grand Tour paid court on behalf of their families. She was sat next to princes. You know, oh. she ran in the right circles and found herself treated, and I quote, like I was a princess. Good, because Al Garotti sure wasn't treating her that way. So she finally lost her patience and wrote a kind of tart missive, to which he finally responded with, oh, I... I didn't get your letters telling me what you were doing. Um, I'm in Paris. I guess you could come here. Like a blurg. Blurg. <laughs> I only chose Venice because you liked it. But I have found myself here better than I was in London, which to me seems like a result. But I, you know, I just want to shake her for sending these just begging, stalkery letters to him. He's just not that into you. He's no. not. She literally said to him the following, brace yourselves, I await your orders to regulate my life. So Lady Mary has spent years waiting for her lover's appearance in Italy. Years, not unproductive ones, certainly, nor lonely ones, as she continued to write poetry while being the toast of society. Many societies. But at last, they inevitably met up for one last adventure. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, hurrah. It might be. <laughs> Which is like the opposite of a hurrah. <laughs> they finally decided they were going to meet in Turin. And they both got there. Same city, same time. We're together. And two months later, it was all over. Mutually agreed upon separation. Can you imagine waiting over two years for this? And then have it just fizzle so fast? Well, also the young man referred to this period as, and I quote, one of the most curious eras in my life. I bet it's safe to say that Lady Mary could say the same thing. And she's had lots of curious eras in her life. That is true. Well, so she enjoyed her life so much 
in general as the celebrated society and literary personage that she really had no intention of ever returning back to England. And I think Mr. Wortley Montague was just resigned to it. They never really talked about it. It's it's like clearly the final separation, but they had just come to terms in their mind with it, I guess. And he mm-hmm. gave her an allowance of modern day, 160,000 pounds a year. That's pretty respectable. And she lived all over Europe, mostly just because she had to try to avoid outright war. This is, shall we say, a period of interesting times. From the old curse, may you live in interesting times, which we are also currently experiencing. (laughs) But in Europe right about now, Marie Antoinette's mother, pre-Marie Antoinette, as a young woman, was battling for her right to take the throne of Austria. It's called the War of Austrian Succession. So it's like Maria Theresa and her allies on one side, and then France, Spain, and Prussia on the other side. It was a very big deal. Boundaries shifted, territory was ceded and in danger, and she just moved about to try to avoid outright hostilities. I thought that the fact that she has been so involved in politics for her whole life really gave her an advantage here. Because she knew the players, she knew what countries were allied with each other. She knew the towns that she could go to and be accepted as an English woman. It was hard, but she certainly was able to play it very well at this particular difficult era of her life. So other than the war part, that little detail, (laughs) her existence on the surface seems ideal. She moved from just beautiful isolated houses with gardens to life in the biggest house in a village. She was given a tower by the city council of Avignon. What? Which she was able to get Edward to finance an addition to. So in addition to her allowance, she got an expansion on her tower house. She also was very proud of herself for introducing the concepts of custard and cheesecake to a part of Italy that had never seen them before. (laughs) But on her way back to Venice, which was sort of fraught with military tensions, you know, soldiers guarding the borders, etc., she fell under yet another young man's dangerous spell. At this point, she is 57 years old. It has been 10 years since she had met Algarotti. And now she has met another charming, handsome man, 30-year-old Count Ugolino Palazzi. He was pretty respectable. At least he had a respectable posting at court. A nobleman, obviously, given his title. And he agreed to be her escort. For a fee, it was actually painted as a loan and that he would repay once they got across the border or whatnot. And it just turned into this whole, have you ever been to another country where everyone's like, come into my shop. Oh, here's where my cousin's shop is. Oh, here's my aunt's restaurant. It just kind of turns into like the nepotism tour of whatever town you're in. Well, that's kind of what it was. His friends and family peeled off notes, you know, from her her pocket little by little. And it got just so dark. Buy my house. Stay with my aunt. Buy from me this furniture that I found at a discount. All of her jewelry got stolen one night. When he had made plans for her to go visit aforementioned aunt, he knew she was out of the house. He knew where to look. Her furniture that was en route would come up, quote, lost 
when he was the one that knew where it was supposed to land, oh, you have to pay this fee for this, or you have to pay these taxes, or we have to give this guy a bribe, and it would all go in this guy's pocket. One village where she traveled saw more clearly than she did that this was a situation, and they called a city council meeting to make sure she was not officially being kept as a prisoner, which she didn't think she was, but she kind of was. I mean, she was paying these annuities to the families of men who ended up still being alive and deposits had been made to bankers that never made it. He was a very good con man because he did just enough to make her trust him. You know, she was ill with malaria and he, you know, gave her a roof over the head, made sure she had something to eat and he took care of her. And when they were traveling through these towns where, you know, war was happening just on the other side of town, he was able to talk them into safety. So I think he just did just enough to make her trust him while he was, you know, robbing her blind. Lady Mary hired a new secretary, a man, to do some work for her. And he finally opened her eyes to what was really going on. And Lady Mary determined on departure, she's going to just end this because you're right. The scales have fallen from my eyes. He is devious, but it got darker still. Count Palazzi offered to go get her money out of the bank and then literally told her via note Sorry, I took all your money out of the bank and then I spent everything to cover my debts. I'm sure you'll understand. You have a lot more money. He literally disabled her carriage in the night so she couldn't leave a village. He hired a high woman to rob the carriage on their way out after they simply got a new wheel made. It's so bad. Houses mm -hmm. that she thought that she had bought Turns out she'd only been renting at an exorbitant cost. And the ownership went back to him. So she was renting her place from the man who she was giving money to. And then when she left, he owned the property. She was kind of trapped here at the end with this poor secretary who I, I'd be surprised if his hair didn't just fully turn gray in one night. <laughs> trapped there until she signed this document. And I think he was trying to prevent himself from being prosecuted, this count. The document stated that she had been living at the Count's expense for 10 years and that any expenses were legitimate and that kind of thing. And she felt like she kind of had to sign it or they wouldn't let her go. 10 years, people. Did you catch that? 10 years she lived like this. And some of her letters back home wouldn't have caused any concern. You know, she talks about the cows and the chickens and the silkworms and these walks in the forest with priests. It sounds very bucolic. But for 10 years, she was living like this. And she left. She's gone. And he followed her still. He caught up with her in two more towns and tried it on again just to see if she was serious. And she was. She doubled back get, to get away from him. And he re-encountered her again. It was like really, really, really scary. He was later convicted of several violent crimes and banished from Venetian territory for the rest of his life and spent time in jail. I think, despite all of the horrors and pressures that she had been through, that she had a lucky escape only because he thought that her well had more water in it. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know how we always talk about they should make movies of this woman? I think if they were going to make a movie of Mary's life, from the beginning of the Algarotti thing to the end of this relationship, there's so much drama. 
and so much opportunity for a really great movie, I think. It seems like there's a lot of subjects that we cover that we think, why are you remaking The Breakfast Club? Right. Wait, they're remaking no, the breakfast you know, club? I just pulled oh. that out of my head. Like instead of doing what you should do, which is to mine the entire itty of history to find a better story that hasn't been done before. Maybe that's harder. Yeah. Get, well, I mean, and then you have to tread that line between historical accuracy and theatrical drama and keeping people's attention and all those characters and story arcs and all those elements. While other people are like, that's not how it happened. I think it's you'd be, be much more fraught to redo The Breakfast Club than you would be to unearth the story of Lady Mary Wortley. Montague. Oh, yeah. This is that's what I'm saying. This is this is gold right here, <laughs> right here. Screenwriters, this is your segment. This 20 year period of time for this woman's life. This is it. This is the big movie. So later she would turn these episodes into a little fairy tale called Princess Docile in which she talked about the dangers lurking for a princess who lets fate take hold of her, which couldn't be more autobiographical there. Well, that young man was not the only disappointing young man in her life, I'm sorry to say. Her son, young Edward, oi, O-Y, he was a bad one. She even said, I expect nothing from him but for him to go from one species of folly to another. And he met with her expectations. They did have one meeting in Paris during this time where it sounded like they got along well, but just like she was being fleeced by the Italian, she's being fleeced by her son, too which is really sad. Well, he worked very, very, very hard to get some of his father's influential friends to get him a commission as an officer in the army. He's in his late 20s. Meanwhile, he was thrown into prison for debt. So then he finally gets his commission, is in service, and really, really overplays what his contributions have been. He's like one of those influencers where his public face is one thing, but the reality is a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. Like the fire festival guy. Yes. You know, it's all air. Lying, puffing himself up, evading consequences of his actions. Reminds me of Count Palazzi, actually. He was elected as an MP and was, and I want you to hear this, therefore immune from prosecution for his debts. That kills me. And so what did he do? He took advantage of that loophole and started gambling, spending. He contracted a bigamous marriage because remember, poor old Sally, the washerwoman, is still alive. Um, he became a friend of notorious highwaymen and involved himself in a life of crime, including blackmail. His father got him another seat in Parliament to save him from prosecution, which he never attended. He never gave a speech. He never voted. I think Eddie's parents here are really going out of their way to try and give him all these opportunities to stop screwing up his life. His father even had them presented at Versailles at court during this time. But, you know, he blew that, too. Well, young Eddie wrote a book, he said, and he submitted it to his parents as proof that he had accomplished something in his life. Well, it turns out that one of his tutors had likely written it. He is just an irresponsible nightmare. Mm-hmm. There was better news, oh, whew, fan ourselves, better news of her daughter. Let's call her because her name's also Mary. Let's go ahead and call her by her married name, which was Lady Butte, because otherwise we'll be like, Mary, Mary. 
And then Mary Mary. <laughs> Lady Butte seems to have inherited the best qualities of both parents. She's supremely intelligent. We talked about that before. Her mother told her to hide her light under a bushel. But without Mary's eccentricities, I guess, should I say, yeah. she was very yeah. practical and loyal, like her father, but without his kind of boring heartlessness. I don't want to slander mm -hmm. him because he was just living his life. But on the other hand, you know, right. she just inherited like the good halves, I think, of both parents. And remember, she began her married life with no help from her papa. She would write these melancholy letters to Lady Mary, which sort of troubled Lady Mary. But in this weird dynamic, oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. I don't understand why the Count had rivers of cash just flowing to him, but none of that could be diverted to Lady Butte? Was it, you've made your bed, now lie on it? Or was it that we don't want to insult our son-in-law? I just don't understand that. Well, add into that everything that both of them were doing for mess up Eddie, you know, their son, everything they were doing for him. And they're not even help someone who actually walked like the right path. Well, speaking of the right path, Lord Butte, this is the son-in-law, had been friends with the first prince of Wales, whose name was Frederick, who had died relatively young in his 40s. But Lord Butte was then, because he was in with the family, was appointed as the tutor to that man's son, the future George III. And then later, jumping ahead, when George III was crowned, was the groom of the stool, which is always a very comical position to me, which started out as official butt wiper to the king. But <laughs> by now, basically, you're in charge of fiscal policy for the entire country, and you are a very powerful official. When George III ascended to the throne, Lord Bute was appointed to the Privy Council. I mean, he is a big, successful deal. And Lady Mary said of him, it is such a satisfaction. I never hoped to have a son that did honor to the family. So she, she's very proud of Lord Butte. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, she got on board with him when they got married. Right. So she just hasn't, that hasn't wavered. Meanwhile, Lady Butte has produced 12 children, 11 of whom survived to adulthood, which was rare enough in this age. And um, you can get a lot of info if you want to read about their relationship. There are a lot of her letters. We'll talk about this book later, published in a book of Mary's letters that came out after her death. And there's a lot of correspondence with Lady Butte. In one of the letters to Lady Butte, she referred to her writing as, quote, trifling employments in which she was writing a history, she said, of her own time for her own amusement. And I quote, it has been my fortune to have a more exact knowledge, both of the persons and facts that have made the greatest figures in England in this age. And I take pleasure in putting together what I know with an impartiality that is altogether unusual. I hope you have not such an ill opinion of me to think I am turning author in my old age. I can assure you I regularly burn every note as soon as it is finished and mean nothing more than to divert my solitary hours. That's really sad that she feels she has to cover her, the thing she loves doing so much. She really did burn that page by page. I think there's a couple of surviving excerpts and people that have read them say, you know, oh man, if only these had survived, what an intricate history this would have become. But she just like one by one, just condemned them to the fire. It sounds like one of those you know, dramatic closure ceremonies that we often have, you know, let's just burn everything, start fresh. Maybe it was her form of therapy. I don't know. 
She was published, though. She was seeing books with her work in them that was not credited to her. Through the middle of this century, the unauthorized edition of you-know-who's winkety-wink poems kind of kept her literary reputation alive Mm -hmm. while she was in Europe. Um, Mm -hmm. So thanks be to her friends and admirers. There was a cardinal who had founded this college, and he wanted her to present her works for his collection. And she acted very shocked, you know, oh, surely I would never publish anything. I've never been published in my life. And she was so affronted. You know, again, it's just like the class thing. Well, and I think her living this lifestyle, you know, surfing around Europe, really, for so many years, added to the mystique of her, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this, it added to the mystique of her brand. And I think that also made people go, ooh, she's living this really different life. Her writing is even edgier now because we know that. If only she'd had an Instagram. (laughs) That is an influencer I would follow. So for several years, Mary has been living back in Venice. She's loving it. She wrote that she felt like a mouse in Parmesan cheese. I think that's good. It seems sticky, but... <laughs> not well, we're not mice, so I uh, I don't know. I don't know. Unfortunately, she was starting to get some information from back home that made her think that her life in Venice was going to come to a close. First, her sister Frances, Lady Mar, passed away, and then she got word that her husband Edward had also died. In his will, he continued Lady Mary's allowance for her lifetime. Upon her death, it would revert to his son. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, 160,000 modern pounds a year, but it was so much less than the son had expected as the only son that he was infuriated. He had a small maintenance of his own, but his sister got functionally 800 times more money than he did, which tells you the level of money we've been dealing with here. (laughs) This is kind of ironic. In his will, he made a stipulation that inheritance that Lady Butte got would go to her second son upon her death. And that son would have to change his last name to Wortley. So he got his entail. He did. He did. (laughs) Well, and you know, again, don't be alarmed for the first son because he, of course, is going to inherit his father's property and titles. They did a really good thing in this family, at least for a few of the younger children to kind of divert. Why are we lumping all this on this one person? Let's go ahead and spread the wealth a little bit. So that's what's happening. But that guy had blotted his copybook. The son was a wastrel and couldn't be trusted with small amounts of money. So who's to know what kind of damage he could have done with that big fortune? Mm -hmm. He did it to himself. Oh, he sure did. And I wonder how much times he had run up his debt saying, oh, I'm going to get this inheritance. My father's loaded. I'm the only son. Blah, blah. Mm -mm. In addition to those really tragic things, she realized that she had a lump on her breast. And that was what had killed her dear friend, Mary Estelle. So all this play life that she'd had suddenly was very serious to her. And she decided that she was going to go back home and she wasn't thrilled about it. She said, I'm dragging my ragged remnant of life to England. So Mary headed back home. She didn't take the quick route. Of course, she didn't. (laughs) She took four months to make this journey from Venice to London. Along the way, it was kind of her goodbye tour. She stopped to see 
her expat friends that were all over the place. She also made a stop with a Reverend Snowden. And when she was visiting with him, she entrusted her collection of letters that she had written from Turkey. You know, those letters that she had edited and rewrote and just polished up. She entrusted him with that manuscript and told him to take care of it. So when Lady Mary finally got home, her fame had preceded her. And People who were too young to have been around, you know, 23 years ago, when she was the toast of the town, had heard so many stories about her that it was almost like, come to see the extraordinary phenomenon. It was like the circus. She's wearing a turban. Look at her weird clothes. Observe her wit. And, you know, it was just very interesting. I think sometimes she was even barefoot. (laughs) You know, just really her hair is all out of place and she just had no cares to give. Finally, I wanted her like that years ago. Well, and I guess she was always very concerned with propriety, the mental equivalent of sitting up straight in one's chair, I guess. You're right. But her actions kind of belie that. She took off and was gone for 23 years. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So anyway, people tried and tried and tried the multiplicity of people that had come by and wanted her to publish something. And I would like to quote from one of these attemptors. He said, I am sure you must often have heard me mention her as one of the greatest geniuses of her time. I have been all this morning endeavoring to persuade her to publish something, but without effect. Although I know she writes a great deal and has many excellent performances by her. No, 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 she said, never, not ever. So she held out until the end. It became apparent to everyone that Lady Mary's health was in serious, serious decline. Her condition at this time was really inevitably fatal. She had decided against doing any treatment for her breast cancer. She had seen what the mastectomy had done to Mary Estelle, and she just wanted to go out on her own terms. So you got to applaud her for that. There was a certain thrill in her life. Her son-in-law was appointed prime minister. So she was back in London to see that happen. This man that she originally didn't want for her daughter, her daughter had chosen well, and now he's prime minister. That's pretty cool. So Lady Mary made her will, and there were bequests to servants, and some friends received sentimental objects, certain rings, certain snuff boxes that meant a lot to them, etc. But really, everything she had went to her daughter. Except for she left her son one shilling. What is that about? Now, it was popularly thought that leaving someone a very, very small bequest prevented them from contesting the will. And that's what she had intended to do. Like, no, I meant for him to be left out because here specifically is what I do want him to have. So it wasn't an omission. Like she hadn't forgotten him. She meant for him to receive nothing, you know? Right. On her deathbed, as she was surrounded by friends and family, she began to express her fear that her Turkish letters that she had left with Mr. Snowden would be published and bring shame on the family. So those weren't her last words exactly, but that was her last preoccupation is fear for the family's reputation after she died. Lady Mary Wortley Montague died on August 21st, 1762. That was within seven months of her return to London. She was 73 years old. She was quietly buried the next day at Grosvenor Chapel. So Lady Butte 
Following up on her mother's fears before she left, paid Mr. Snowden for the return of her mother's Turkish letters. Poor Mr. Snowden had just written a little letter like, might I publish these? They are fabulous. Nope. Here's some money. Never. Never will these be released. So she felt a great amount of relief that she had headed off that tragedy, that her mother's work would be released. So what must have been her dismay when she read in the London Chronicle, May 10th, 1763, the following announcement. This day has been published. Letters of the Right Honorable Lady M. W. M., written during her travels in Europe, Asia, and Africa to persons of distinction, men of letters, etc., in different parts of Europe, which contain, among other curious relations, accounts of the policy and manners of the Turks drawn from sources that have been inaccessible to other travelers. You can see, can't you, why it gets referred to as the, quote, Turkish letters. <laughs> That was quite a mouthful of a title. How did this happen? Apparently, Reverend Snowden had left the manuscript out at an inn and a couple 'er ne'er-do-wells saw it and copied it. So Lady Butte actually had that original manuscript. What was published was this copied version that was no permission given by the family at all. It was an instantaneous success. The first edition sold out almost immediately, and the reviews were positive. And I quote, This has never been equaled by any letter writer of any age, sex, or nation. Voltaire himself praised it to the sky and passed it around. Many great men said this was their favorite book of all time and carried it about with them. There were reprints. There were bootleg copies. There was even kind of a fanfic like epilogue where they cobbled together some fraudulent letters and guess what else happened? You know, it was to great acclaim. What ease, what knowledge of Europe and Asia. And her daughter was like big thumbs down. Like many children of extreme eccentrics, she had become very, very conventional. And possibly as a result of all of this unwanted furor about her mother's Turkish letters, and I'm very sorry to say this happened, it is a blow. Lady Butte burned her mother's diary before her own death, which is a great loss to literature. It is, but instead of the fiery cinders of these diaries, I want to leave you with this image. Lady Butte would keep those journals locked up. Until Sherry time at parties when she would say, oh, would you like to read some of my mother's diary entries? And everybody was like, yes, let's. So she would haul this out, <laughs> read something really titillating, and then lock it back up when she started to sober up again. <laughs> Lady Butte. I know, you have a veneer it. of which alcohol is the solvent. And her children only knew their grandmother through these anecdotes and that mom thought this was something that she could only share, you know, something exciting. And so that's all they knew about her. So she was really, um, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. A legend. Yes, she was a legend in their own minds. <laughs> One of her grandsons got a hold of a lot of her other non-Turkish letters and allowed a volume to be published. And once you know the story of her life, and now you do, you're welcome. You should give it a read. Nice. Later still, a fanboy found her, no other than Lord Byron himself, 
He encouraged the family to release a more careful edition of the letters after he had found the carefully omitted letters to Algarotti in Venice. Um, They sort of agreed to the careful editing and didn't agree to including the Algarotti letters. If that's all right with you, Lord Byron, they're a little embarrassing. Well, he admired her so greatly and said that she had been the inspiration for his own work and particularly Don Juan, and also his creation of his celebrity persona. And I am not sure Ada Lovelace, his daughter, would thank her for that. See episode 103 (laughs) of the History Chicks podcast. But all I'm saying is without Lady Mary, Lord Byron might not have been a flake. His daughter might not have had her tendency to poetry suppressed, and she might not have been forced into math and science. We may not have had computer code today, which is an exaggeration, (laughs) but is an example of the butterfly effect. You never know what your actions will do to the future. You don't. Because those Turkish embassy letters, a much easier title to say, are still being published, they're also still being studied. And they're being studied by different people with different interests and careers. They're looked at by feminists as feminist history. They're looked at as cultural histories. They're looked at by the LGBTQ community, all piling through these same letters, finding meaning in their own passions, in their own lives, in their own work, still to this day. And here is another undeniable effect that Lady Mary had on the world. Back in 1757, a small boy by the name of Edward Jenner was inoculated against smallpox in Gloucester, one of the thousands of British children that were inoculated that year and were rendered immune to smallpox. Thanks, Lady Mary, for that specifically. As a teenager, he apprenticed to a country surgeon and was exposed there to the commonly held widespread country wisdom that dairy maids never got smallpox. And this information percolated in the back of his mind for decades until for whatever reason that brain cell raised its hand and reactivated. I get things like the theme from Green Acres reactivating. (laughs) He saves the world. Okay, that's fine. So he started to think about this like, huh, I wonder if that could be a thing. I'm going to look into that. So Mr. Jenner encountered a dairymaid named Sarah who had active cowpox and went ahead and inoculated an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps with that strain. And he felt a little low for about 10 days, but it was kind of no big deal. And then Mr. Jenner inoculated him with smallpox and there was nothing. That's an interesting first foray into the theory that inoculation with the safer cowpox could prevent the more dangerous smallpox. And it was on. He decided to call this technique vaccination. The Latin word for cow is vaca, and cowpox's Latin name is vaccinia. Okay, so this technique, where you would give someone the lesser of two evils, vaccination, became widespread first in England, then in Europe, and then over to Vice President Thomas Jefferson in the United States in the early 1800s. Thomas Jefferson wrote back to Mr. Jenner, You have erased from the calendar of human afflictions one of its greatest. 
Yours is the comfortable reflection that mankind can never forget that you have lived. Future nations will know only by history that smallpox ever existed. Thomas Jefferson's views were, of course, not shared by everyone, even though Edward Jenner came with receipts. You know, he had all these controlled studies that proved that this vaccination worked. There were still people that were arguing against it for the same reasons that they had argued against it in Mary's time. People sometimes have to be dragged into progress. Very true. It took longer than Jenner and Jefferson might have hoped for, but the dream has become a reality. Thanks to the Turkish ladies, Lady Mary, Dr. Timony, Onesimus, Cotton Mather, Edward Jenner, and everyone they influenced along the way, smallpox has been eradicated through vaccination. In 1977, the last case of naturally occurring smallpox in the world was reported the last case of smallpox in the entire world, a lab accident, happened on September 11, 1978. And on May 8, 1980, the World Health Organization declared the world free of the disease. 263 years after Mary set the ball in motion by having her son engrafted in Turkey. And now it is time for media. I think the big book is Lady Mary Wortley Montague by Isabel Grundy. It was 630 pages. It's a deep dive. It was the most thorough of the ones that I read. So if that's if you want all the details, I think that's the one to go for. Yes, it is heavily footnoted. Heavily. If you want to go a little bit more shallow, and I will tell you I have more pages in this book marked than the other, the Pioneering Life of Mary Wortley Montague, Scientist and Feminist by Joe Willett. I have that one, too. I thought it was the most current. It was May of 2021. So it's a really new book. It was an easy read. It hit all the high points. And I do have to say that Jen S. from Twitter, this is the book I was reading when I took that picture and you asked me what book I was reading. And I told you I couldn't tell you. That's the book I was reading. I, like you, had more things marked in that one than in the other two that I used. <laughs> All right. And then don't miss Mary Wortley Montague Collected Letters. This is a commitment. It is 543 pages, but I found it very interesting even at points to open it randomly and read a letter at random to which, mm. you know, you get things like, oh, this monster is, you know, she was always talking about this thing called Lady So-and-so. And I don't know. It's just interesting to get a little window into her world here and there. If you would like an easier way to get through the Turkish letters, and that makes it sound like it's a chore. It's not. I thought they were pretty delightful to read. There are a lot of versions of this book out there, but the one that I really liked the best was Embassy to Constantinople, The Travels of Lady Mary Wortley Montague with an introduction by Derva Murphy, and it was edited by Christopher Pick. I like this one because it was illustrated. <laughs> Love me some pictures. There were sidebars and explanations, and it was a decent-sized font in a hardcover book. Now, my favorite book, the one I used and the one that, frankly, looks like the Velveteen Rabbit right now because I accidentally left it out in the rain, 
Mm. <laughs> I'll have to show you a picture of this is The Life of Lady Mary Wortley Montague by Robert Halsband from 1956. It was once the property of a public library. I bought it <laughs> with my money. It was purple. And now it is an interesting shade between lavender and pink. <laughs> and it is shaped like the letter C. <laughs> oh, please take a picture. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> it is puffy. It has pages marked. I've gone ahead at this point. I just wrote in it because what are you going to do? <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I just want to assure you that I own it and it's no library's property currently. Just if, as the disclaimer, I am very sorry, but I fully left it out in the rain. But that's a good one to do. I think that was really the first thorough biography of her. And it was a diving board kind of for the other biographies that were written. Isabel Grundy even thanks Robert Halsbend for helping her write this book. I don't know if it, he was like in person or just because of the work that he did. I think it's available on both LibriVox and Project Gutenberg if you want it for free and don't want to leave it out in the rain. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> one of her first biographers actually was one of her granddaughters, uh, Louisa. And I was not able to find a copy of her work. I mean, it, it, just by its very age, I would say you'd probably only find it in reference sections. But that right out of the gate, somebody that was right on the spot began within the family to set down the legend. There's another book that I got my hands on. It's called The Poetry of Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Um, in my comments, I said, didn't hate. So if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. I did write down one quote that I pulled from it. I prefer liberty to chains of diamonds. <laughs> well, there you go. If vaccines and immunizations are your thing, uh, one that I really liked was immunizations, how vaccines became controversial by Stuart Bloom. Mary isn't mentioned in it, and Edward Jenner gets all the credit for the smallpox vaccine, but it was a nice tracking of common vaccines that are out there and controversies surrounding them up until COVID. So this is a very recent book. And then if you would like to follow the rabbit hole of Edward Jenner, who is very interesting, he was... Um, also a naturalist who liked to catalog novel specimens of animal species. So he had two very distinct scientific careers. The Life of Edward Jenner, Naturalist and Discoverer of Vaccination by F. Daughtry Truitt. Cool. That's all I have for books. As mentioned in part one, I have an extraordinary deep dive into the house at West Dean from georgiangroup.org.uk. It has all kinds of layouts. It has um, the history of who owned what, what kind of family strife led to one daughter receiving it and the other daughter getting six shillings, um, all kinds of things. It's very good. Drawings from throughout the centuries, highly recommend. Also, I have a link to WBER's coverage of smallpox and its vaccinations. There is a timeline of vaccine development at historyofvaccines.org. And also, um, I found myself going on to The Lancet and reading a lot of journals about the development of vaccines. Mm -hmm. You may not want to go that far. 
Yeah. And then faster one, uh, if you want to get just some background on vaccines, uh, there is a podcast in our time who covered immunizations back in 2006. So they have um, experts on and talk about it if you just want to listen about the history of vaccines on a podcast. And of course, because I don't always like, you know, the heady and intellectual stuff, I can recommend Puppet History. (laughs) Just recently, they had America versus Smallpox. It's a series on YouTube. It is not for children at all. It's done by the hosts of BuzzFeed Unsolved, and it's kind of a game show format, and there's a big musical number at the end. And this one, the musical number was about smallpox, scabs, and pus. Mm. Again, not for children. Also, I hope you're not eating. (laughs) I was, and my daughter put it in front of me. She's like, you have to watch this. You're just having lunch. I'm like, okay, I will. I also would like to tell you, and we kind of skated over it, if you do go online to look up what smallpox victims look like, you really have to be prepared. Mm -hmm. It is so bad that I think just don't have kids behind you in the room when you're looking it up on your laptop because it is so disturbing and it really makes you feel it really makes you feel for the the victims here. It is not good. So just, you know, a little disclaimer on your own search too. just cuidado, you know, about who is seeing you. If you would like to go down the rabbit hole of Cotton Mather and Onesimus, um, there are some articles at history.com and the Washington Post that I will lead you to. And also some things about Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson's involvement. Franklin is on a rooster's list, isn't he? I think. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson is, but on the other hand, he's so brilliant and so problematic that I'm just like, I don't even know if I want to shake him or like, I don't even know. (laughs) I know. I know. know. Sometimes I'm just like, let him leak out where it's positive and just, uh, he drives me insane. It's kind of like Hemingway where I would like to talk about him. And on the other hand, I would also like to kick him in the ding ding. (laughs) I don't know. We'll let you know. Ding, ding, kicking. (laughs) If you would like um, something super light, Atlas Obscura has an article about the history of floriography, the language of flowers. Nice. I know. Also, of course, we'll link you to some articles about Jenner. And then on the Pinterest board, I will put up a picture of the Frith painting that shows you the moment when Alexander Pope went to the dark side, perhaps. (laughs) And then also, just because I found it and I thought it was cool, there is in the Smithsonian a spirit of vitriol bottle, which you can recall from episode one was considered to be one of the cures for smallpox. Cool. Which is sulfuric acid. Nice. (laughs) I do have one really weird thing that happened to me that's Mary adjacent. I walk every day and I listen to audiobooks when I do most of the time. And I happened while we were researching this to be listening to The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. It is really good. But the thing that was kind of freaking me out is a good portion of it is set during Mary's timeline. So I'm hearing about, you know, parts of France and London in this novel and then also in the other books I was reading at the time. Mm-hmm. It was just so weird hearing the two of them um, together. It was it was just like life imitating art kind of thing. 
And the narrator of the one that I got off of Audible, her name is Julia Whalen. She was phenomenal. And I don't usually comment on that kind of stuff, but she was amazing. She was so amazing. I followed her on Twitter. (laughs) And that's all I have. And that will do it for our coverage of the life of Lady Mary Wortley Montague and the battle against smallpox. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about our show. Find an episode you think your friend would like and have them listen on a road trip or while they're working from home. And if you could see your way clear to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that would be spectacular. I was just wondering, from out of nowhere, if all those little sewing kits that are shaped like a walnut have something to do with smallpox inoculations. It literally just occurred to me. So I am going to go out and see if I can find one on eBay. I think it would be a fun thing to have. Weird, because usually by this late in the evening, my mind is running in all sorts of different directions. But at least this time it landed on a topical question. And you can find other topical questions. How's that for a segue? In our Facebook group. You just go to the Facebook page, The History Chicks, and click join group. It's that blue box in the middle. Be sure to answer the entry questions. They're not hard. It's just to prevent robots from entering because evidently we're seriously prejudiced against robots. So as long as you pass that one little test, you're in and you can join the conversation. It's pretty lively and friendly and you can always find some kindred spirits. The Pinterest boards too. There's one for each episode are pretty full of rabbit holes and not to be missed. The song in the middle of this episode is, and excuse my lack of Italian, and in fact, the length of the name of this song, Variazioni su una sola corda sui remi del most of Rossini by Niccolo Paganini. And the song at the end, more simply, is Mary by Fresh Body Shop. I was thinking maybe of Pope and his complicated relationship with Lady Mary when I picked this song. See you next time.